Hey everyone, this is uh, Vegan Theology, episode number three. This is Kevin. Hi, this is Sarah. Welcome to everybody. Yeah, hey. We're excited to be back. We're excited for another episode. Uh, we did want to start today responding to some feedback, and we're excited that we're starting to get some feedback from you guys. We definitely want this to be, as much as possible, a dialogue, a conversation back and forth. So whether you have comments or concerns or questions or right. encouragement or, you know, whatever it is, um, we love hearing from you. It makes our day. In fact, we got some really positive feedback from someone who goes by the handle of Believing Vegan. Yeah, um, pretty awesome. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Very kind. It, yeah, it really is a little wind in the sail to, sure. to, to know that we're not just talking into a vacuum and that... And also, I think uh, Kevin and I were talking um, earlier this week. I think that you can feel so isolated as a vegan who is also a Christian, and yeah. uh, you know your vegan friends don't necessarily want to talk about God, and um, your Christian friends don't necessarily <laughs> want to talk about veganism. Yeah. And right. and yeah, it's almost like I think we said in our intro, it, it almost starts to feel like it's burning inside your body. You just want you want to be able to start talking about these things that are so important to you, that right. you value so much and um, that mean so much to you. So, But through doing this podcast and starting to um, get in contact with, you know, starting to have people interest, interested in what we're doing, all of a sudden you realize you, we are not alone, that there are other people right. who are in the same position with, um, with their theology and with their ethics. And, and so it, it really does... It's very encouraging, and it just makes you feel like, you know, let's collaborate, let's encourage each other, let's get the word out, let's support each other any way we can, um, let's really be a team. So, right. And one comment we got referred, I, I believe, to uh, a book that we had cited in our book list. Yeah, as part of the notes, as part of the, the podcast notes, I put some of the books in there that we, uh, <coughs> that we reference. And uh, one of them was Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. And, mm -hmm. of course, we don't agree with everything that Peter Singer So, yeah, the per says, I think the person's right? comment was, you know, that kind of takes away some credibility that you would even re refer to someone like that because they do have some views that we certainly do not agree with, right. um, either from a vegan standpoint but also from a Christian standpoint. And so the person was kind of saying, like, when I saw Peter Singer in your book list, I was like, wait, you know, I thought I was, you know, I was starting to maybe be interested and agree with some of what you're saying. But then I saw that and it kind of cooled right. my enthusiasm. Right. And, and we were referencing a, a historical chapter in that book. And Peter Singer himself is actually really referencing an earlier 19th century work by a British uh, guy. His name was Henry S. Salt, and his book was called... Animal Rights Considered in Relation to Social Progress. And that book has some amazing historical references to it. So at any rate, you know, we weren't referencing Peter Singer for any theological exegesis. And I think the, our view on this is that at the end of the day, all truth is God's truth. And there are other books we reference which didn't make it under anyone's radar. But, you know, actually the, the book that I'm more concerned about I think in our first episode, we referenced Sandra Richter's Stewards of Eden. And in that book, causes me a little more 
pause is that she, you know, she, she there's value to the book. There really is. But um, she does make a case for humane killing, um, or at least she references it. And I just, of course, as vegans, we all know that, that there's really no such thing as humane killing. And so I look at that like this is a place for this podcast and this is a place for our views and even this uh, churches like the Creation Care Church. Our job is to even push back and educate theologians, people who have degrees, PhDs in um, Old Testament and biblical studies and these kinds of things. So that's why we're here. That's exactly why we're here. There's a gap. We know there's a gap, and we're here to do that. But I just want to say that I referenced Sandra Richter's book, and I don't agree with everything that Sandra Richter says. So, But again, it goes back to our view of God, our view of God. And we philosophically, we could say that God is a maximally great being. And logically, there can only be one maximally great being. And so all truth is God's truth. And guess what? Humans, we distort God's truth. Many times in our jobs is to um, try and find the truth, trying to line up with God's truth as best we can. And that's that's the task, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the fact that, you know, someone was maybe, you know, triggered by seeing Peter Singer as someone we were referencing. I Because I do sympathize with that. You know, I can see why, you know, certain authors, certain thinkers are offensive to our sensibilities in certain ways. So I mean, I think I would just say to keep in mind um, as we workshop ideas and as we 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 enter into conversation around different ideas from different people and different sources, you know, if something appears in our book list, it certainly doesn't mean we agree with them right. at all, or we agree with them on some points and we differ with them on significant other points. Um, and we will point that out. And guess what? We might reference a book that we're actually critiquing. Right. You know, and, and we recognize even Martha Nussbaum, she's a philosopher from, from University of Chicago. She's just come out this year with a, an amazing book. Let me just reference it real quick. It is called, <clears throat> sorry, it's called Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. And as a philosopher, she's come up with this uh, capabilities approach uh, for humans. And now she takes that approach that she's actually built and applies it to animals and our treatment of animals. So it's actually a, a great contribution. But Martha Nussbaum I think she thinks it's okay to eat some form of crustacean or something. So, and I think she thinks that they're not sentient. So, I forget specifically. We can get to that when we, whenever we, if we ever do get to that. But that's just another example of somebody that we think is making good contributions to the vegan cause, but we might not agree with them on everything. So, mm. but again, we we definitely welcome any and all feedback, and we do Please. take we do take it seriously, and um, we think that it only makes us better to you know be challenged or or to be encouraged or uh you know just to kind of get some feedback so that we're not just unreflecting and hold us hold us keep us honest keep us accountable to what we say and because we do want to do this with the most integrity and the most humility we can so yeah vegan theology at gmail.com is one way you can uh, reach out to us and we we will read those emails and and definitely respond. So leading us into today's topic, we wanted to kind of review because we are trying to build a case. Overall, we're trying to build a, a faithful theology. And so we're, we're just trying to go very systematically through the text and through the, the concepts. And so um, our first episode was a kind of a comparative creation myth conversation. 
where we compared the Hebrew creation account we find in Genesis to Enuma Elish, is that right? Yeah, Enuma Mes- Mesopotamian, which is kind of representative of a lot, some of the other creation myths that were contemporaries with with the Hebrew creation myth. Right. And, and the point of that was that unlike uh, what we would consider the pagan creation myths, our story really represents a God who is loving and peaceful and caring and provides for creation in a very benevolent, kind way. Right, and as we'll get into today, he's also a king. And so he's sitting on his throne in heaven, and he's almost decreeing that the creation happen. And we'll get more into that today, getting into the royal language of the image more we're headed, but go ahead. And so, you know, unlike the other myths, which were very, very violent, very, very gory and bloody and with a lot of jealousy and war and revenge, and um, this was, ours is a stark difference. Right. Yeah, there's peace, there's no predation, there's no violence. There's abundance. There's abundance. Rest there's no competition, like a capitalist competition. Yeah. So. There's value in just existing. Right. You know, instead of what can be produced through you. Right. And there's not a lot of striving. like or like scarcity. And, right. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very different. So it's, it, it really, it's fun to really just kind of marinate in those differences because right. it, it reveals so much about, about God. So then the second episode, we went into this, the language used to describe the creatures that God created. So starting with bird life and water life, those creatures, in chapter 1, verse 20, and then the land animals on day 6 in chapter 1, verse 24, and then the, the creation of the, of the human um, in chapter 2, verse 7, we highlighted the fact that this exact same phrase is used to describe those creatures, animal and human, which is nefesh haya, living creatures. Yeah. And we, we read the definitions of those two terms, the nefesh and the haya, from the Bible dictionary. Yeah, from Nidad. Um, and pointed out that basically, according to this text... Human animal and non-human animal are the exact same composition. Right. And so when translations take the liberty to translate that phrase two different ways, to call animals one thing and to call humans something different, how do they support that? How do they defend that choice? It's clearly not from the Hebrew text. Which, right. which it's not from the biblical text. It's from extra biblical sources. Or, the, or bias. Bias, but philosophical and or other theological sources. Right. Right. So, so yeah, if you read a translation that, makes, that uses different language for the creation of the animal kingdom and, you know, and then like the human, um, that, you know, and we know that humans belong to the animal kingdom, but that just remember it's, they're taking liberties there and it does not it's not supported by right. the by the Hebrew language right and so one of the things we did say was that um, we were quoting some commentator and he basically said actually it was the I think it was night on it was the Bible dictionary we were referencing that said the only difference between humans and animals was that humans were made in the image of God and so today that leads us to 
the image of God. That's what we're going to be talking about. So we're again, we're just trying to build this case. And um, the image of God, known by many theologians in Latin terms as the Imago Dei. And so you know, there's a long history throughout church history of what the Imago Dei means. And I would even say for myself, um, there was a time when I thought, you know, I was stamped with some internal, I don't know, something, substance that made me in the image of God. And, and, and I was special and unique and, and different in that sense. And, you know, even if I didn't know exactly what that property was, I just thought I was unique. But it turns out that theology itself, by the way, we're referencing a book by J. Richard Middleton. It's called The Liberating Image, The Imago Dei in Genesis 1. And in there, he gives a historical account of how, you know, this is one case where systematic theologians have possibly misinterpreted the image of God or the Imago Dei for centuries. And in one uh, quote he has, he says, for centuries, theologians have used extra biblical sources and philosophical ideas to explain what the image of God means. Few have attempted to root their interpretation in the context of Genesis itself. Wow. Another quote, he, he quotes a, a specialist, David Carnes, comments that all the Christian writers up to Aquinas interpreted the image of God as man's power of reason. Okay? And he, then he, his comment on that is, which betrays Platonic influence on theology. And so this is what we're finding. We're finding a lot of the theologians up until really the 20th century, um, and it really wasn't theologians, it was biblical scholars who really pulled out the view that we're going to represent today. But I think the, the, the essence of the theologians, the systematic theologians, was that um, they were arguing from outside of the text, really, that the image of God was some sort of ethical um, ability, some rational ability, some intellect, some relational sense ability of us to God, some divine Sense. And so I think the view we're going to present today is more of what uh, biblical scholars are calling the royal functional view. But I mean, what jumped out at me when you were saying that, Kevin, is, is the fact that theologians for like the mainstream theologians for a significant period of church history were defining image of God from extra big biblical sources. Yeah, ideas. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's such a sobering fact that we all need to just admit, right, is that whatever culture waters we're swimming in, we bring that to the text. Right. And, and, you know, at least we should admit it and, and try to be as, as aware of it as possible. Right. But yeah, how sad is it that the prevailing understanding of the average Christian or the average pastor or whatever of, of this concept of image of God has been influenced, colored by Greek Gnostic kind of thinking, right. you know, which yeah has nothing to do with the ancient Near Eastern text that we were exactly. given. And what the original hearers of this word would have thought about it. And that's kind of what we're going to try to get to today. But this also is just another commentary on um, how, you know, as a church, we're supposed to interpret the word in community, but this is an example where the community for centuries of church history 
has been maybe non-biblical in their interpretation of the image of God, the yeah. Imago Dei. So, so what, I, what excites me about what we're going to present today is I think it, it is so much more it, it authentically in line with, okay, how would the ancient Near Eastern person understand this language? Right. Like what would their automatic, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, understanding be? Like, right. Like in their culture, in their time, this phrase had a very specific meaning yes. that it <laughs> that we tend to overlook at, at best. Overlook um, or don't even know. And, or yeah. Overlook would indicate that oh we were aware of it and we just, you know, gloss yeah. over it. No, I mean we're unaware of I it. I think I mean I, I I to be fair, I think in some of the sermons I've heard that reference the image of God, yeah, like so, there's some elements of what we're going to say today that you know, is in the awareness okay. pool, but but yeah, I think I think we're gonna we're gonna put a finer point on it today, or drive it home a little bit more fully today. Right. So, so let's orient the conversation around the Hebrew text. If we could go to Genesis chapter one, starting in verse twenty-six, and I guess the two terms that we're going to be really focusing in on today are image and likeness. So starting with verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so the uh, the Hebrew words, so you have this, but the Hebrew yeah. word for image is salem, salem. Yeah, salem. Which, if you want to look that up, the Nivek number is seventy five twelve. The Strong's number is sixty seven fifty four. So uh, image is the Hebrew word is salem, and likeness is demuth in Hebrew. Nivek number 1952 and Strong's number 1823. Right. So, yeah, if you want to follow along, those are, those are the numbers in the concordance that all would uh, match up with a theological dictionary. And we're using NIDOT, the uh, New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, edited by Willem Van Gameren. Okay, and so uh, we're going to be referencing two books. Like I said, we're, re- we're referencing The Liberating Image by J. Richard Middleton. The subtitle is The Imago Dei in Genesis 1, and Sarah's referencing Nidot. Okay, so just a quote from uh, Middleton. He says, Studies of Israel and the ancient Near East that cite Mesopotamia and Egyptian stories in which kings and sometimes priests were designated the image or likeness of a particular god, whether Enli, Shamash, Marduk, Amun-Re, or Horus, a designation that served to describe their function analogous to a to that of a cult image of representing the deity in question and of mediating divine blessing to the earthly realm. So what I'm hearing you say is <laughs> or what I'm hearing Middleton say is the ancient Near Eastern person understood that God would bestow God's image on the king. Or maybe a priest. Someone to dole out God's blessings. And they, that person then was God's, like, embodied 
representation on earth. on earth, spoke for God, spoke for God's will. Right. Not their own will. Represented God's character. Yes, God's character, key. So, so th- yeah, again, going back to our familiar Genesis pas- passage, God is saying, let's make all humans in our likeness, in our image, right. to rule over creation, and to repre- basically to represent God on the planet, right. to be God's representative. And again, that is very unique within the ancient Near East, that every human would be given the image of God. Usually yeah. it was reserved for priests and kings. Just like one one individual in the culture. Right. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. And and that gets into okay, and it's also worth noting, and we just need to put this in perspective since we're talking about the ancient Near Eastern culture, that um, you know, doing a word study, which is what we're doing right now, referencing a theological dictionary. Um, you know, it's a tool and sometimes, you know, as we know, Tools are as good as the person wielding them. So it's always humbling to uh, represent uh, God's word. So here we go. So we're talking, this is, gets technical, but basically we're saying, uh, Middleton is saying that the semantic range of Salem, the Hebrew word for image in Genesis 1, includes idols. Although its semantic range is broader than the single meaning, we need to account for Salem in many contexts, clearly referring to a cult image, which in the common theology of the ancient Near East is precisely a localized, visible, and corporeal representation of the divine. Okay? So mm. what they're getting at is that the ancient Near Eastern person, the, the observer, would have been looking for a visible and bodily representation of God. And I love that definition in the sense that we are God's image bearers. We are God's royal representatives on earth to do his will, not our will. But I love that it says localized, localized, visible, and bodily, Mm -hmm. localized, visible. So think about that. When God tells us to increase and multiply and spread over the earth, we are, he's asking us to be his representative across the earth a bodily, localized, visible representative. And the only way to do that is to multiply. And, and yeah, I think what, going back to what you were saying earlier, the, the Greek influence, the Gnostic influence, that only the spiritual matters, only the mind right. matters, and that the body is worthless or corrupted or whatever, I think has, has robbed Christianity in so many different ways right. that... Uh, that we don't see the body as sacred, we don't see the body as important right. to our mission. And that um, just reminds me, Middleton makes the point that in all the theological observations and inter- interpretations, they 100% almost unanimously don't include the body in their definition of what the image of God means. Yeah, it's, it's a very Greek idea that that we can separate out the elements of what makes a whole human. Right. Whereas in Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern thinking, it was just the whole person. Right. Everything about that person, the invisible and the visible, was all one. Whereas in Greek thinking, it's, oh, you know, it's very distinct. And there's value to, like I said, the mind, the spirit. Right. In, in philosophical terms, you know, a lot of times we refer to that as dualism. 
in, in philosophical metaphysics, you know, we talk about what the substance of things is sometimes. And in African theology is what we might call a monism. It's everything's one substance from spirit to, to body to soul. It's all one thing. And we're seeing that in the uh, ancient Near Eastern mind and in the Hebrew mind. It's, there's no dualism. Yeah. And I even think today in Trinitarian theology, there is a, I think there's a push to get Christian theology back to a sense sensibility of monism as well and get away from dualistic thinking. Anyway. Yeah. So I'd love to share um, the entry from the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, Volume 1, nice. <laughs> on, the, on the entry under Salem. The thing is, when you look up Salem in this dictionary, yeah. it says, see Demuth. Right, go to likeness. Go to likeness. So, yeah, and it makes a case right here in this entry that I'll read that uh, basically image and likeness in this context are synonymous. They are interchangeable terms. So, the nature of the likeness of humans to God, as far as the Genesis narrative is concerned, can be established with relative clarity. The function of dominion is indicated in the passage. So it is reasonable to make function the primary point of the analogy. So right away, we're just, I love that. We're just looking at, okay, what does a text address? Mm-hmm. And let's, let's just take the text on, the, you know, on its own terms. Right. And, so, and I like that. So when he's talking about the analogy, he's talking about the royal analogy. Again, that we've kind of been referring to that. Right. With that the king gives... The, king, the king's likeness to, or, or like God gives image to the king, and then the king has subjects that do the king's right. will too. So, and implied in that image is a function, a job function, so to speak. And that's and this view is we're calling it, and Middleton's calling it, the royal functional view. Okay. So this is further confirmed by the bilingual inscription. So now he's going to talk about um, an actual ancient statue um, and it, the inscription that is on the statue. So he's saying this is further confirmed by the bilingual inscription of Tel Fakhariah. So that's the name of the statue. The statue itself is a representation of the rule of King Hadad Yeti of ancient Guzan over the ter- territory of Sakan across the river. So again, they, they erected a statue to say... Your ruler is, is this king, right? Right. Uh, you're in his territory. Yeah. So the Aramaic refers to the statue as Demuth as well as Salem. Hmm. So again, um, image and likeness. The terms are interchangeable, suggesting that no particular distinction is to be found between them in their combination in Genesis. Further, their application to the physical form of the statue indicates that the physical human form is a critical aspect of the function of image. It would seem that Genesis makes a transfer of the concept of representation by a statue to that of a living being. So kind of like what you were reading, that Mm -hmm. um, this term can often have to do with idols or icons. But in the Genesis, it has to do with a living person. It has to do with a living human. The likeness does not consist of the physical form at all. Rather, the likeness is in the function of that form to represent the presence of God in the world. This is affirmed by Psalms 8, 
which um, talks in royal terms about humans' role as subjects of the king, which has its, as its central theme the majesty of God in the world. The divine presence is represented through the creation of humans who exercise dominion. If the likeness to God is function, as suggested by both lexical and theological data, the sense of verse 26 is to say we are created as God's image, taking our physical presence represents the divine presence. That's crazy. <clears throat> so, so this is what we would, we would propose. This is what Genesis is actually saying right. to the ancient Near Eastern person is that, oh my goodness, our God has made every one of us God's image bearer, God's likeness on this planet. Has made each one of us royalty, has made each one of us a representative of him, has made each one of us a viceroy. And the term viceroy means in place of, meaning you are his God's representative in place of him. It's a great word, viceroy. And so think about that. So what what we've built so far in our case is that God created a very peaceful, nonviolent, abundant, non-predatory uh, environment in Eden. He made humans and animals the same, and then he made humans the viceroys, the representatives of this, to rule that planet, that Eden that we're supposed to spread throughout the entire planet. Rule it like he would do it. Yeah. It's almost like God passes the baton to the humans, right? Like, God says, okay, I've shown you who I am. I've shown you through this beautiful, functioning, or well-ordered and harmonious creation. I have shown you my character. Yep. Now I'm passing the baton to you, and now you get to represent me and continue the rule. The way I would rule. And, and we're going to get into, in future podcasts, the concept of order and disorder, or what some would call chaos and cosmos. Theologians refer to it that way. And we're going to get to the fact that God created, established a orderly environment. And the idea, too, that we've kind of been saying is this, this royal concept it comes with a function, a function, a job function. And we're going to get into that, too. Uh, John Walton in his Genesis commentary talks about form and function in terms of how the world was created. And I think what Sarah was mentioning, I think it's worth noting if you're maybe a little skeptical of this royal view, you can think of in Genesis 1.20, I believe it is, or no, sorry, 1.26, in Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make man, he's referring to his royal court. He's sitting on his throne. And then if you look at Isaiah 6.1, Isaiah's having this vision, and he sees God sitting on his throne. And in 6.8, God says, Whom shall we send, and who shall go for us? And again, God is addressing his royal court. Mm -hmm. And then Psalm 8, we should read Psalm 8, because that again bolsters this royal view of humans as God's viceroys. So I I think it's, it's worth pointing out that the writers of Scripture, so... We're talking about the writer of Genesis, the writer of Psalm, the Psalm eight, or the writer of Isaiah. Like they're using, they're they're depicting God as a king holding court on the throne, because that's what 
the culture, that's what the ancient Near East understood. They right. they they completely got that image. Well, even even if you know the story of the Hebrews, right? They kept pining for a king, right? Yeah. Um, they kept saying, "Give us a king, give us a king, give us a king." God said, "Okay, fine." Reluctantly, God gave him a king. Mm-hmm. So it's part of that that ancient Eastern world view. And if we're to read Psalm eight right now, I'm just gonna skim a little bit, but it says it begins. Uh, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then it goes on and says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion, over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. And that's also, that just reminds me, um, in the Genesis passage there, Genesis 1, 26, 27, when, when God creates man, he says, let, let us make man in our image and our likeness so that he may rule and subdue. And all of the biblical scholars are saying that combination of those two words, rule and subdue, which we're going to get into next podcast, those words closely associated with image and likeness, 100% refer to, like, I think Middleton even said, essentially just said that there's no question that this refers to royal function. And I think that's fascinating. And so, yeah, like these words, and like you said, we're going to get into these words next time, like the subdued, dominion, rule over. Right. Like, you know, we read those and, and it's like, man, it really sounds like we can do whatever we want right. with abandon, with impunity. Right. But again, how does how does it make logical sense that if we're representing, if we're God's representative, that we should rule with impunity, that we should rule with cruelty, that we should exploit and abuse and commodify God's creation? It, it's it's so much more consistent to think, oh, if we're God's representatives, we should reflect God's character and how we treat the rest of creation. Right, and I just want to point out too um, in Middleton's book. He mentions the royal functional interpretation of the image came to have a particular significant role among Renaissance humanists in 15th century Italy, although often left out of historical accounts of imago interpretation because they were not members of the theological or clerical guild, thinkers such as Ficini, Mirandi, and Pico della Marandola developed an interpretation of the imago Dei as Godlike power that humans exercised on Earth. So, like, when when were, when would that have been? When were they saying that? Fifteenth century, so sixteen okay. something. So the thinking was out there. This this kind of thinking was out there, but it it was kind of overlooked or it was overlooked. Passed over. They didn't take them seriously because they weren't theologians or, or they weren't the clerics. Okay. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. So, if you're hearing what we're getting at, I think the way we're reading the text is we're trying to stay true to the biblical text. Again, we're, we're referencing word studies, we're referencing theological dictionaries, and we're really trying to do the text justice. And I think if you haven't picked up on it already, I think one of the things we are presenting is a sort of pre-fall view of God's intentions. Mm-hmm. And we're going to also present a post-fall view. Okay, so we're trying to set up this case and... 
if you follow me and if you know what that means, we're trying to... Almost like a a post-redemption view. Yeah, we're trying to set up God's original intentions, what he originally intended for creation, and where we're going to end up, the goal of creation. So, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. It's exciting to me. A preview of what's to come. Yeah, a preview of what's to come. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, very exciting stuff. Yeah. And what all this study has really uh, reminded me of, too, is some work done by a theologian, Carmen Imes, hmm. recently in her book about Exodus. So she, she covers the Ten Commandments, and she I was so taken by her interpretation of uh, the Third Commandment, which is ex- from Exodus 20, verse 7. So the Third Commandment, as you remember, st- uh, states, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him blameless or guiltless who takes his name in vain. So she has brought from the text through all of her studies of the culture that our understanding of this commandment is so anemic and so so incomplete because we basically have turned it into be careful how you use God's name, right? right? Like don't use it as a swear word and don't whatever. Don't misuse or uh, disrespect God's name. And she's saying this has really nothing to do with that, if honestly. And she's saying that basically the commandment would be more faithfully interpreted or translated, do not misrepresent me on earth. So this is very consistent with what we've been saying about image and likeness. Your whole job that I gave you at creation is to be my representatives, to be my, yeah, to be my image on the, on the planet, to rule the way I would rule. And so when you go out there and you're misrepresenting me, right. I hate that, you know, (laughs) don't do it. Right. So like the goal is every day we get up and with our relationships and our work and, you know, how we show up on this planet, you know, to commit to how can I, faithfully represent God, you know, instead of, you know, representing my own will, how can I represent God's will on the planet? Oh, that's great, Sarah. Love that. Yeah, I mean, and so when you think about, you know, the overfished oceans, or you think about how we've genetically modified animals to get the most meat as quickly as we possibly can, even though it puts it puts their organs and their bones under extreme suffering situations. When, right. when you think about um, how their you know egg laying hens are prisoners in their own bodies, forced to we've we've modified them so much that they ovulate every day. Right. Or when you think about how we have to kill calves so that we can steal the milk intended for the calves, uh, so that we can sell and commodify the milk that comes out of cows. I mean, how are we doing? How are we doing with this command? How are, how are we doing at representing God's character to creation when, you know, we've, we've turned animals into machines right. instead of thinking empathetically and what, what is actually best for this animal to have the least amount of suffering and have a, have a long, happy life. You know, we, we, have, we slaughter them at six months old or 12 months old and you know, and, and mass produce them. And, you know, we could go on and on right. and on, but it's, it's just yeah, holding this theology up to how current events and, right. and how we use animals for entertainment and, and for fashion and for uh, scientific 
and experiments, vivisection. Yeah. Like, yeah, I would, I, I would definitely make the argument that we are failing on a massive, right. unthinkable scale. We, we've used the image of God and, and we've basically said, oh, I have the power, I have the permission to do whatever I want. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to be too strong, but in some ways, um, it is kind of heretical. Hmm. We are doing oh, the opposite. Humans on this planet are doing the opposite of our functional charge to be God's viceroys on this planet, his image bearers. Hmm. And it's, it's, even to use the word ungodly, it is ungodly what we're doing to animals terrific so all right well <laughs> we can end on a happy note <laughs> so so yeah i think just to give us some hope because we we believe that truth will win out that's the right. nature of truth that's the nature God's of God's truth goodness and beauty is that we can get we can catch this image for we can be inspired we can be excited about the job that God has given us and we can get excited about what our function is as the image bearers of God. And yeah, if God gave us this job, I believe God will help us to complete it. Right. And I feel like that's what this podcast is about. And the other uh, entities that we're becoming aware of, like the creation care church that we've bumped into. I mean, I love the fact that there's a church out there called the creation care church Mm -hmm. and we need to have more of those kinds of churches yeah. and we need to start getting this thinking into the minds of Christians so that we can become proper and faithful functioning. Yes. Faithful image bearers. Have a great day, everybody. Peace. See you next time.